Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so excited. I don't even know how I'm excited. I just got off of a plane. I flew for, God knows, 13 hours from Shanghai, China, landed at LAX, gave them my immigration form, ran into an Uber, came here with my bag in hand, and there he is, Shep Gordon, walking right in, the legend, the man, the myth. The guy who's coming out with an amazing book that we're going to talk about called They Call Me Supermensch, a backstage pass to the amazing world of film, food, and rock and roll. And let me tell you something. I've been trying to get this guy for, let's see, I think Falco had a hit on the radio the first time I actually asked him, but it's good to see that he's here. He's laughing. He's excited. I don't know where I am. I went to Tokyo. I went to Thailand. Why are there no American men in Thailand? There will be after this episode, ladies and gentlemen. So anyway, thank you so much. You guys have been, as always, amazing. So supportive. I can't even believe the texts and emails. In my office, I got a steamer trunk somebody (laughs) sent me with stuff. I don't even know what a steamer trunk is, but it's in there. And you guys are very creative reaching out to me. I really appreciate it. I wish I could meet with all of you and talk with all of you. But if I did, I would be living in a dumpster behind Ashmont Station. But thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank all of you who have been so kind. So I'm looking across from Shep Gordon, a legendary man in all forms of entertainment, and it's so exciting to see him. And as you know, when I look at my guest, I never know exactly what I'm going to say, but 
when I look at him, I know exactly what I'm going to say now, even though I have no voice. Let's go to Thailand. Let's go to Thailand. <laughs> that's right. But that's actually what I think of when I see him. Because getting back from this trip, and this is the first vacation that I've ever taken by myself alone, probably for over two decades. When you're, again, I don't expect everybody in the audience to know about Japan or Thailand or China. But one of the things that happens when you go there as an American is you are treated like you would treat your grandmother or your grandfather or your mother or your father or your closest friend or your most cherished loved ones. But the difference is, is that everyone treats you that way. Everyone treats you like a million bucks. Everybody treats you like their most important mission in the world is to make sure that you go back and you tell everybody that the people here are the greatest people in the world. Well, what I want to tell you guys about this and how it relates to this man I'm sitting across from is that I think what'll help you most to start this cold open, I think it'll be better this way for you to really understand how the relationship between Shep Gordon and my trip to Japan, China, I'm curious. and Thailand relates. This is what some people had to say about Shep Gordon. Reality has never seemed too important in the 50 years Shep and I have been working together. When we need something to happen, Shep just works his magic to simply make it a reality. I'm still not sure how he does it, he just has the natural ability to create scenarios and relationships that help to get you where you need to go. Alice Cooper. Next quote. Shep Gordon loves life. And they call me Supermensch is his joyful, soulful, and hilarious account of how he found some purpose for his own life. One for the good guys. Michael Douglas. Next quote, Snoop said I was the only one to smoke them under the table, but I remember more than once when the pot party ended, the Shep and I were the last one standing. <laughs> Let's burn another one soon, Shep. Willie Nelson. Supermensch is an understatement. I've known Shep Gordon for more than 40 years. He's the real most interesting man in the world. Sammy Hagar. I'll give you one more. This one from actually a publication. At a time when people feel compelled to revel in and share their excesses, and Gordon does share a few of his, it's refreshing to find a story in which the search for meaning trumps the search for mischief. Publishers Weekly. So what I'm trying to say here is that Shep is a guy who's always lived his life treating people like a million bucks. He's always lived his life in a way where when he leaves a conversation or a negotiation or anything having to do in business, no matter how difficult or how easy it is, he leaves that area of the business better for being there. He leaves it as a guy who, when he leaves, just like those three countries when you leave, you leave thinking to yourself, these are the nicest people in the world. And when you deal with Chef Gordon, you leave life the same way and your business the same way, whether it be clients that he's worked with 
or people who he's worked against. I'm sure he's negotiated a few contracts where he's left blood on deals, but I would probably guarantee that those people, after the shock of knowing that they paid how much they paid, realized, hey, you know, I'd still like to get a beer Mm -hmm. with Shep Gordon. And so this being probably one of the shortest cold opens I've ever done, I think it's pretty clear and I think we can hammer it home right away. I always say it's all about the relationships. It's all about how you treat people. We've always heard in our lives, treat people nice on the way up because you're going to see the same people, God forbid, if you're on the way down. And when you're around somebody like Shep and I've never met him before, I've never been around him before. And the minute I met him walking in with my bags, I had that feeling like, ah, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be a wonderful time. We're going to have a fantastic sit down together. And if I feel that way after 30 seconds or a minute, imagine how all the people who you work with in your lives, everywhere in business, whatever you do out there who's listening, imagine if you're able to create that. Imagine if you're in the law office and people actually say about you, man, that's the best lawyer we have at the company. They do the best work. But you know something? That's also the nicest person we have in the office. Imagine if you're number one in both areas, what you can accomplish. And I think if you can do that and you can create those wonderful, wonderful relationships, but also be incredibly smart with how you do business, shrewd, and also create these ways to do your business like Shep has that are so innovative. You're talking about a guy who was involved in rock and roll and then somehow figured out a way to change the pattern. And if you can change the pattern in anything, even if it's a great behavior to another great behavior, let alone a bad behavior to great behavior, but you can go from one great kind of lane to another. Most people will always say, including me, find your lane, go with your lane. But Shep's lane, first and foremost, is kindness, generosity, respect for his fellow men and women. And that's the umbrella at the top. And so that allows him to seamlessly go from one career and then start another area of business like he did creating the whole super chef generation, which we'll talk about to be able to do something like that equally well in both areas. To tell you how rare that is, that's like when Les Moonves made the decision at CBS to just have a guy walk in who really never had done much of anything, Mark Burnett, and say, you know what? Yeah, we'll put Survivor on the air. Well, well, Mr. Moonves, we don't have anything like that. We have scripted shows. You don't do reality television. Well, I'm ready to try it. I'm going to work just as hard as I do in that area as this area, and we'll be just as successful, if not more. And great people and great minds can change and figure out a way to change patterns and get to the next level in anything they do if they put their mind to it. So I think the lesson today for myself, after coming back from where I came, and for all of you out there, is take your business and your personal life and don't be an asshole. Don't be mean to people. Treat people with respect. After you deal with them, make them want to work with you again. When you leave the room in that sales job and they close the door after you said goodbye, 
think of them talking to themselves afterwards. My God, we have to work with that guy again. And if you can create those kind of situations in your career, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of business life that Shep Gordon has had. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary, and I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, You'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. 
So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I guarantee you today will be a day that you will remember for the rest of your life in podcasting because this guy is amazing, Shep Gordon, that we're going to meet. I'm going to introduce him, and if you guys are still awake after that, we're going to have the best time ever, I can guarantee you. I just made a commitment just now to quit Coca-Cola, so I know it's going to be a good day and a shitty day when I'm ready. All right, here we go. Brace yourself, get some popcorn, lie back, and set the alarm clock. It's a long bio. <laughs> After a childhood in Oceanside, New York, and a degree from SUNY at Buffalo, Shep Gordon founded Alive Enterprises, a personal management company, in 1969. Over the years, Gordon and Alive have been responsible for managing the careers of Alice Cooper, Groucho Marx, Raquel Welch, Ann Murray, Ben Marine, Teddy Pendergrass, Stephanie Mills, Blondie, Manhattan Transfer, Burton Cummings, Yvonne Elliman, Midnight Star, George Clinton, <laughs> Luther Vandross, Rick James, and Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, Kenny Loggins, the Gypsy Kings, the Pointer Sisters, and many, many more. Alive acts have sold over a hundred million records worldwide. Gordon and Alive set many precedents in the music industry, including the first television production of an album, Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare, the first long-form rock video produced for home release, Blondie's Eat to the Beat, and one of the first concert television series, Rock and Roll Tonight, all of which inspired a new generation of music, video, and theatrical rock concert productions. In the mid-70s, Alive ventured into the movie business, where its first production, Ridley Scott's The Duelists, won the Best Debut Film Award at the 1977 Cannes Film Festival. After several studio productions, including Roadie and Endangered Species, Gordon co-founded with Chris Blackwell and Island Records, Island Alive and Alive Films for the production of independent feature films. Their commitment to artistic freedom attracted influential filmmakers and has been responsible for the production and or distribution of the Academy Award winning Kiss of the Spider Woman. I remember that movie so well, it blew me away. Academy Award nominated Betty Blue, which if you haven't seen that movie, will blow you away. Incredible movie. Marlene and El Norte, Lindsay Anderson's The Whales of August, Alan Rudolph's Choose Me and the Moderns, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, They Live and Village of the Dam, Wes Craven's People Into the Stairs, Sam Shepard's Silent Tongue, as well as 40 other titles. In 75, Alive expanded into the restaurant industry with the opening of its first restaurant, Carlos and Charlie's, which became a Hollywood institution, an institution in many places around the world for 20 years. In the late 80s, Alive partnered with Robert De Niro to open Tribeca Grill in New York City. What a great place. Alive's restaurant business is still active, having opened approximately 40 restaurants thus far, the most current being a founding partnership in John George's Spice Market in New York City. Gordon's management style has always involved an eye for talent and innate understanding of what people find entertaining. In 1992, with his eye focused on food as entertainment and chefs as entertainers, Gordon founded Alive Culinary Resources which was designed to bridge the gap between the public and the world's most sought-after chefs. 
From its inception, his client roster read like a who's who of the culinary world, including legendary French chef Roger Verger, <laughs> Alice Waters, Wolfgang Puck, Charlie Trotter, Emeril Lagasse, uh -huh. Dean Fearing, yeah. Nobu, Todd English, Charlie Palmer, Larry Forgione, yeah. Paul Prudhomme, Jimmy Smith, Stephen Piles, Robert <laughs> Del Grande, Daniel Ballou, Michelle Richard, and a hundred more of today's most famous chefs by making sure his chefs were always treated like his other artists with contracts, proper compensation, and respect. Gordon revolutionized the food industry and was able to help monetize the culinary arts into the multi-billion dollar industry it is today. Gordon is very active in philanthropic endeavors and is the coordinator and sponsor of the Roger Verger Culinary Scholarship Foundation, sits on the boards of Tibet Fund and Real FX, and the advisory board of the Taj Hotels. So served on the board of the American Liver Foundation and is a founding member of the Hawaii Regional Cuisine Movement and was inducted into the Hawaii Culinary Hall of Fame. Gordon also won numerous industry awards, including being named one of the 100 most influential people in Rolling Stone magazine and was the subject of Mike Myers' 2013 documentary, Supermensch, The Legend of Shep Gordon. Anthony Bourdain Echo will be releasing his book, They Call Me Supermensch, a backstage pass to the amazing world of film, food, and rock and roll on September 20th. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. What a pleasure. Somebody wake him up. <laughs> Shep Gordon. You have to hear that. I'd like to beat him. You like the <laughs> Sounds like a great guy. You are him. <laughs> oh, I forgot. <laughs> you know, it's always weird to hear about yourself because, you know, uh, I fart, I burp, I do all those things that humans do. Just not during the podcast. Yeah, hopefully not. But it, it's, uh, so anyway, it, when Mike showed me the movie, um, I was very detached from the documentary. Um, and, um, all I did was interviews. I wasn't really involved. I gave him full control. He didn't have to show it to me to approve anything. But he said, I can't put it out unless you see You got to see it and approve it because I love you. So I went to New York to his apartment to watch it, and he showed me the movie. And at the end, he said, are you ever going to talk to me again? Do you hate me? Do you love me? And I said, no, but I'd love to go to lunch with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I think it's hard, so, you know, especially it's not what I do. Um, it, it's, um, I'm not used to it. So, um, and I have flaws like everybody else has flaws. So to hear just those sides, but I, I loved hearing your, um, your cold opening, which I was here listening to and you, and your bridge between, um, your trip to Asia and the way people approach life. And, um, for me, one of my, to tie back into that for a second, because everything you said was very true, but my focus was a little different. I grew up, I got very lucky very young. I'm really successful. Lucky? I mean, luck is a part for everybody's career. I worked hard, I was smart, but I got lucky. Um, and I, you know, thank you, whoever's in charge for the luck. Um, but I found myself in a world of very successful people who were miserable really unhappy, um, drinking too much. Not, I mean, I'm in a, I, I love 
liquor. I love drugs. I love fun. I love to have a good time. There's a difference between having a good time and watching people hurt themselves. And I lived in a world where everybody was dying. You know, um, Hendrix died. Morrison died. These were my peers. Janis Joplin died. Um, the business people I saw were miserable, just miserable. I didn't see any joy. Um, and then I met a chef, a fellow named Roger Berger, who you, you mentioned. And he was successful, and he was happy. He was, like, joyous. And when I saw him, I said, maybe that guy can save me because I see where I'm headed. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a train wreck waiting to happen. Way too successful, beautiful women, drugs, everything I wanted, driving a white Rolls Royce, pinky rings. I was definitely headed for a crack up, um, having no idea what I was doing while I was doing it. And, and what I learned, uh, to get back to what you were saying, what I learned through him and the essence of, I think, Buddhism is that service to others, in whatever way you express that, whether it's being nice to them, cooking them a meal, uh, massaging their feet, whatever that way is of your service, um, sharing a resource, is the, is the most selfish thing you can do because it's the path to happiness. So not only were the people in Thailand, I'm sure, and I wasn't with you on the trip, nice to you, but they're always giggling. And they're always smiling. Always. Always. Like they're always, and they have nothing. No. You know, by our criteria, they have, <laughs> they have nothing. They don't know where they're going to feed their children in two years from now. Just so you know, in Thailand, the average yearly salary of a person at best would be $10,000 oh, to $12,000 yeah, a year. That's good, a doctor. The, yeah, that would be a yeah, doctor. Yeah. If you make $25,000, you are considered oh, wealthy. Yeah. And you make thirty or something, maybe you're like the manager of a hotel and you've been there right. for 10 years. I mean, if you can afford a car, you're very wealthy. You're on a bicycle or it's six people on a motorcycle. So... I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the way the government works is is women aren't really allowed to guess, work in the real workforce till after they finish university or I something like so. that. I believe so. I'm not very special. And so these people are forced into this world where the only way to make money is to go with guys and hope they give them money, and then they give the money to their family. They're always taking mm -hmm. care of their family. Always to the family. And I never saw one Thai person not smiling. Not smiling. Gig almost giggling. It's almost like they have a secret and they're giggling. And I think that secret is the joy you get from service. I mean, I, I found it in my life. I think, you know, I think it's, it's what I concentrate on and I feel like I live a fairly happy life. And I, you know, and the only real change I made in my, the path of my journey was focusing on, on service. And I realized that for me, it's what I did for a living anyway. And it just made what I did better. I was naturally inclined to it. Um, management is service. You leave a hotel in the United States. You stay at a nice hotel. Parents, people tell you, what do you leave to the maid per day? Well, some people who stay at a Motel 3 might leave nothing. Mm -hmm. Or some people who stay at a Holiday Inn might leave a dollar a day. And if you stay at a Ritz-Carlton, depending on how wealthy you are or whatever, you might leave five, ten dollars a day, or you know, some people might leave twenty a day, whatever it is. I was leaving the hotel and I wanted to give the I mean, I think the person like fell off their oh, chair. Yeah. They're like, What are you doing? This yeah. is you can't give me this. So yeah. Like But well, how happy did it make you 
to give it the change. And the point is, it wasn't even like it was some extraordinary amount of money. It was Doesn't just normal. It yeah. But for them, it was 10 times more. And and it's, and you get more out of it than they do. Um, I did. Yeah. No, that's that. I, I left my hotel room this morning. I'm on my way to New York. And I little note, thank you so much. And left five dollars. I do the same thing. And I felt great. I do the you same know, just thing. Felt I great. always write the note. Yeah. I always write the handwritten exactly. note. Exactly. And I, that's, I think those are the, uh, you know, I, I used to tell my kids all the time, think of Johnny Appleseed, but instead of dropping apple, you're dropping smiles. Just wherever you go, try and, you know, put a smile on the people's faces that you touch. And very selfishly, it's the most selfish thing you can ever do in your life because it makes you happy. You know, it's interesting you said that because in Malibu, where I'm from, there is a, you know, I'm Jewish and there is a... <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it, a congregation. of, And the guy has his congregation in, in a house that's on a mountain overlooking Malibu Chabad, mm-hmm. overlooking the ocean. Mm-hmm. And he lives upstairs and downstairs is the school and the temple. They convert everything uh-huh. into. And I said to him sometime, I said, I'm so grateful for this podcast because I love doing it because it's free and millions of people get to hear it and it's helped so many people. And he said, Bear, it's, it's not just that. It's only 50% of it. I said, what do you mean? I feel so great mm-hmm. given this. He says, Barry, in the yin and yang of how the world works, 50% of it has to be you giving, but the other 50% has to be the joy of people receiving and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. And so that's what yeah. it's all about. That's what and it's so all about. Yeah. It's great. I have to ask you this. Yeah. Tell me in well-documented form, the last time you were an asshole to somebody and you went home and you sat on the couch in the fetal position, you said, my God, I've lived my whole life to be the nicest guy in the world. And I was, I got to clean that up tomorrow. You know, it's funny. It's been a long time. I can't, I, I, um, for me, it's more, I'll get a thought that's a real asshole thought and I'll correct myself. But it rarely goes to action anymore. I mean, there was a time when it did, but I'm sort of retired now. Um, so it, dealing for myself is dealing then for a client. There were times when I would be an asshole to someone on behalf of a client and really feel bad about it afterwards. Um, but now I'm pretty, I live a pretty um, Buddhist kind of life. I mean, I'm not a Buddhist, but I feel like I live a very uh, Buddhist kind of life. So I don't really, anger doesn't come up much. Um, all the things that would cause being an asshole um, are sort of not part of my life anymore. I have my resources. I think when you're when you don't have resources, there are times you're in a corner and you have to do what you have to do. One of the things that I found as a manager that's the hardest part for me in keeping the philosophy that you keep, and I think anybody who knows me hopefully will say that I'm a nice guy yeah, and I try to be a nice guy. Spirit, I can see. Yeah. But what happens is. When you're working on behalf of a client, for me, my job, it's not about me. Yeah, it's all about that. It's all about the artist. Mm-hmm. The artist doesn't really, and I'm not saying this in a rude way, I'm saying it in a factual way, their job isn't to give a shit about how people feel about me. Right. Their job is to give a shit about how the deal went mm-hmm. and how they got Getting what they wanted. A to B. And so what I find the most difficult thing is when 
I'm working on negotiating a deal for an artist and they say what they want and to get what they want, I find sometimes it creates a stain on my relationship with the people that I deal with and it takes a long time to clean it up mm -hmm. because you can't go in and say, yeah. hey, the reason why I was that way because this person's mm -hmm. a jerk and this is what they wanted right. and they're the jerk, I'm not the jerk. Right. And not to say the artist is the jerk, the artist just wants what they want. They mm -hmm. want what they want or else they don't want to do it. Yeah. Look, Emeril Lagasse renegotiates his contract and you're involved, okay, the network is like, hey, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, we're the food network, this is what we have. What you want is the budget of our whole operating for the year. Right. We don't pay that. We pay $6 and a bucket of KFC. When Emeril wants to renegotiate, I don't think the president of the Food Network is, is saying, Chef Gordon, what a great guy, after he asked for 30 times what Emeril Lagasse was making. How do you clean that up and how do you know. keep the relationships? You know, each one is a unique each negotiation is a unique, as you know better than anyone, is unique unto itself. Um, but as, as general overall rules, I never signed contracts with my artists. One of the reasons was so I could always talk honestly to them and not feel the pressure of a forced relationship. The second thing that I always, always say to them is you, you don't pay me to get no's. You can pay anybody to get a no. You pay me to get yeses, but I can't. The only way I can get you yeses is if you don't pressure me for time, A, and you allow me to be reasonable. So if you really want $10 million an episode and the budgets are $10 million, I can give you the name of 20 managers who will go in and ask for it. I'm not one of them. It's not the way I operate. If you want to be realistic, the budget's $20 million. They probably can afford to pay you $2, 3000000 million. Let's see what their production numbers are. Let's approach this like grown-ups. If you want to approach it like a mad kid and have a knee-jerk reaction, there's guys who maybe can pull it off for you, but it's not what I do for a living. Um, I'm not into you know creating losers. I want everybody to win. So what I did with Emerald, actually, because I hit that. It was exactly what I hit. And, I, and uh, the network at that time was not making a lot of money. Um, Emerald, we, the first deal we negotiated was basically for free. I think he got $200 an episode. Didn't even get expenses to come from New Orleans to shoot the episodes. Sounds normal. It was a commercial for his career. It, it, was the, it was the highway that I wanted to build for all the chefs, not just for him. I said, we get broadcast and you'll create an art form. And that's our job. That's what we're here for. I did everything pro bono. So I wasn't, I didn't commission. This was a whole different era. And you didn't commission the $200 an episode? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but anyway, what I did is I, I sat down with them. And I said, there's no money. It's never going to happen. Let's figure out a way that we can make more money by them not having money. Let's not look at it as a negative. Let's be a positive. And we created Emerald Spices. And I went to the network and I said, I understand you can't pay us. Give us one 60-second commercial in every show that we can program. And we created the Emerald Spice Company. He started doing BAM. And he made a million times what he would have made as a fee by owning the spice company, which he eventually sold to B&G Spices. So it's, you know, it's having a grown-up relationship with the artist, enough of a knowledge to know what you can get and what you can't get, and then a creative way to get to it. You can't 
do it every time, but you know, that extra bit of effort, um, in most cases you can get around it, you know? But I don't mean to go back to the documentary, but how does Mike Myers know you and where did you meet Mike Myers? My, you're not, was, you're not in the comedy world. It's like, how did, <laughs> like, how does this guy in a world that you're not even involved with do a documentary on so who's never, I don't think who's ever done a documentary on anybody else. It started with one of those exactly the same thing we were just talking about. It started with, um, a phone call. Alice was very big at the time that Mike went to do Wayne's world. And, um, Somebody called up and said they wanted Alice for Wayne's World. We were doing a new record. And in those days, s records from soundtracks had great momentum. It was a period in time when, you know, Rocky was number one. Kenny Loggins had a soundtrack number one every week. Saturday Night Fever, Grease. Soundtracks, if you had a soundtrack and you had somebody with a suitcase willing to pay the radio stations, one plus one equaled a hit record. Um, so the and, one that's come closest to that recently would be Adele for Skyfall. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't exist now the way it used to exist. In the early days, it, it was gigantic. I mean, it was it was um, the easiest path to a hit record. But soundtracks this, didn't start until like the 70s, right? This is the 70s. But that was the fastest way at that particular period in time. If you could get a soundtrack to a significant record, you were home. And, um, and they wanted um, schools out. So I said to Alice, listen, I'm going to take this thing. They want schools out, but I'm going to take a position. I'm not going to agree to schools out. I'm just going to agree to doing the movie. And when it gets too late for them to get anyone else, I'm going to tell them we're doing a song from the new album. And uh, I can make this work. You just got to back me up if anybody gets to you. Just... So um, about a week before the movie started, I called up and I said, you know, we're, we're thrilled doing it. I just got off the phone with Alice. I haven't had a chance to speak to him since we talked a month ago. And that's not what the, the song he wants um, in the movie. Oh, my God, you're kidding. I, we can't go back and tell Mike Myers. I said, I'll, I'll tell Mike Myers. I have no problem with it. But we don't have enough time to get anybody else. I said, I'm really sorry. but um, So Mike flipped out. And, but why uh, didn't he want the song? He wanted a song that was recognizable. He wanted it for the um, end credits. He wanted a song that people knew when they were watching the end credits to keep them in the theater. Um, I wanted a new song. And there was a scene in the movie where for about six seconds you saw Alice um, playing. It was like six or seven seconds. It was nothing. It was a walk by. They were walking and talking in the background. Is, uh, so I went in to see Mike. I never met him. And uh, I said, listen, I, you know, I sort of have a job to do. I sort of lied to your producers. Here's the truth. For us to do, um, get a movie, a, sound, a song in a movie means a hit record for us. To do the end credits, all we're doing is helping you. We need to help us. So if we help you, you help us. Give me that six seconds, the new song, so I can write on it to the radio stations from the movie Wayne's World. You give me that, I'll give you the end credits. And he said, you got a deal. Hated me for it, I think, but said, you got a deal. We got it in. We sort of had a hit with it mild hit um and um a couple of years later i heard he was at the four seasons and i sort of wanted to um smooth over if anything was you know still in his gut so i called him up i said i was i happened to have um stallone and schwarzenegger were coming over i think for dinner that night 
So I invited him as he tells the story. He didn't believe me, but or Mal, Whoopi Goldberg or somebody. But he came over and they were all there and we started talking. And his dad had just died and he was having a tough time. And he ended up spending a couple of months in my guest house. And uh, every night he would come over like a little kid and beg me to tell him another story. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved to cook. So for me, it was great. I had somebody to cook for. And over dinner, I'd tell him a story. And then over the years, he'd come back and it got to the point where he would come to the house and he would have written on his palm in ink, uh, Charlie Chaplin, uh, but, but he'd have names written. And we'd come and he'd say, okay, you got a Charlie Chaplin story? And I, and I never didn't have a story for any of the people he ever had written on his hand. And it's so, so bizarre. There was always some bizarre story. Charlie Chaplin, oh yeah, I introduced him to Groucho Marx at the... Uh, at the Savoy Hotel in London in the tea room. You know, and it was a great, I told the story, but anyway. Um, and then he started saying, we have to document this. This has, You're not gonna live forever. We have to document these stories. And I, um, the scariest thing to me that I saw through my career, more scary than the use of drugs by people, um, was fame. Very few survivors. The, the more famous they became, the harder the fall. And I had already accomplished in my life what I was working for, which was being able to feed myself and feed my family and have a house. And so I had no desire for fame. And he kept coming back at me and coming back at me. And um, finally, I had a, uh, a medical incident that I flatlined a couple of times. And I woke up in the hospital and I was drugged out and I was all alone and really feeling sorry for myself. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> what an ending. <laughs> and he called up and he said, okay, now? <laughs> and I said, yes, and, uh, here we are. <laughs> All the stories in your entire career, all of them, um, you can only choose one that you could pick the greatest storyteller in the world to tell at your funeral. <laughs> What's the story? Oh, God, there's so many stories. Um, you know, that's a really tough question there because my life is a series of stories. It's been like a Forrest Gump life. I, I think easier for me to talk about significant moments in my life that were part of stories, like meeting Roger Berger. I was um, at the Cannes Film Festival. I had a documentary that I had put together with uh, G. Gordon Liddy and Timothy Leary. And I had both of them in con for the festival. And um, we're in the Moulin de Moujan, which is this three-star Michelin restaurant, very fancy, um, beyond celebrities in the room, Kirk Douglas, James Coburn, Anthony Quinn, Pavarotti. I mean, it was one next to the other, everyone in suit and ties. 45 wine glasses on the table. It's very formal. And um, Timothy Leary stands up and hits his empty wine glass till everybody turns. Hi, I'm Dr. Timothy Leary. Some of you might have heard of me. And now I'm starting to get really nervous. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, if you, if you know about me, you know I have some uh, problems with the law with um, pharmaceuticals. And um, so it's hard for me to travel with drugs. I was able to bring in some uh, LSD on paper blotter. And, uh, but I'm sure some of you must have sleeping pills or be on diets and have diet pills. 
I'm going to come around table to table and maybe we can trade. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my God, he had just come. He had just, the, before he stood up, G. Gordon Liddy had gone to the bathroom and he took the salt shaker and put lines on the table. Now G. Gordon Liddy, oh, and a great preface to this, by the way, the reason I did the documentary is I, I tripped over the fact that in the late 50s or early 60s, Timothy Leary, at three o'clock in the morning, had G. Gordon Liddy, who was the prosecutor in this upstate county in New York, climb into his bedroom window to arrest him for drugs. But Leary had been tipped off. So he put peat moss in a container with a lock. So Liddy puts him in handcuffs, takes him to the station, they open it up, and it's peat moss. <laughs> so anyway, that was me. So um, in the middle of all this, and and in the room, all these people are there, but everybody's smoking cigarettes. Everybody's knees are bumping up and down. Um, I realize I'm sort of becoming one of them. I'm headed right to that place, um, and into the walk room. Into the room walked this Roger Verge, all dressed in white, sort of a giggle on his face, um, and you could tell he was the power figure. Um, Coburn jumped up and hugged him. Anthony Quinn came over. Everybody was looking at him. And uh, that was the moment where I said, wait a second, maybe you can be successful and happy. Maybe you don't have to climb over other people. Maybe, maybe this guy has found a path somewhere that's different. And um, he graciously, I went over to him at the end of the night and told him I wanted to be his grasshopper. <laughs> and he barely understood English. He had no idea what I was talking about. Grasshopper was from a Kung Fu series, of for course. those of you who don't know. If um, you can take this pebble yes. from my hand grasshopper yeah and um he graciously even though, not knowing any what he said to me actually was uh do you, i'm a simple chef would you like to work in my kitchen and i said i don't know how to cook and he said well if you learn how to cook i'd let you work in the kitchen for a day and um i said how do i learn how to cook and he gave me the names of some cooking schools and i went that year to both schools marcella hansen in italy and Came back the next year as his grasshopper saying, I'm here, I'm here, I went to school. Could I? He had no idea who I was. <laughs> I, I was one of thousands of people who come through the restaurant. <laughs> um, but he, I told him, I said, you know, he told me if I went to these schools, I went to the schools. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to Bangkok to cook at the Oriental Hotel next week. I won't be here. And I said, could I come with you? And he looked at me with the... And, but he was so gracious and so much of the spirit we're talking about, he just got a smile and said, oh, but of course, if you would like to. Um, and I went to Bangkok with him. And um, I'm actually on my way to New York tomorrow night. And I'm producing for the Culinary Institute. Mr. Verge died about five years ago. And with 12 of, the, of his students, who are 12 of the greatest chefs in the world, we're doing a benefit to establish the Roger Verge Scholarship Fund tomorrow night, which I'm really proud of. Awesome. Um, awesome. A nice, nice circle to it. But so I would say that probably the most significant moment in my life. And the second most was um, meeting His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, and having the ability, having him in the same spirit that we talked about before. I offered to cook for him, and they always say yes. It's not even a question. The, 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 the Tibetans are so. So of that service moment, so of that um, compassion moment, that I couldn't get anyone to tell me what he eats, because that would be imposing their will on me. 
So I couldn't even get, I had to go to a chef who used to cook for him. Whenever I would say, what, what can I make him? Because I was lost. I wasn't a Buddhist. I didn't know what to make him. And uh, oh, whatever you make, you will love. <laughs> Let's back up here. How do you meet the Dalai Lama? Or am I supposed to say the holiness? I think you can say anything you want. He wouldn't care. So how you do you meet the anything. Dalai Lama? The guy. You could call him the guy. That was the interesting thing <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking to myself. The Dalai Lama. What was his birth name? His birth name was Ginson Taizo, I believe is how you pronounce it. Ginson yeah. Taizo. He, it's, uh, he's the 13th rebirth of the Dalai Lama. They believe in rebirth. So you're born to a normal family, and then you're discovered. How are you discovered? It's um, a, what they feel is a very scientific process. It's, there's a fellow whose job it is, who's also a rebirth, to get a vision. After the Dalai Lama dies, the fellow in charge of finding the rebirth gets a vision. In the case of this Dalai Lama, he got a vision of a a house with a green roof, which was very unusual in Tibet. In the mountains, smoke coming out of a chimney. So they sent word out all around the country that anybody, to all the monks, did anyone know of a house with a green roof that had a child born around a certain date? And they got word that there was a house. Only one house? They found one. They traveled to the house. I don't know if there were more than one. I know they traveled to this one house. Now, not dressed as monks. They're normal people. Now, chances are there's more than one child in this house. But the age. It was by the age. Okay. The die and a rebirth. So they happened fairly soon. Uh, you, by, by when he was born and when the last Dalai Lama died, you get the link of the rebirth. So it has to be a baby. It's a year. I think they found him. No, but it had because you know, they don't always find them. They found this one at three years old. Um, it took three years to find him. And they bring into the room um, the favorite things of the Dalai Lama who died. So they'll bring in 10 watches. And one of them was the old whole. They have the baby pick a watch. How could a three-year-old know to pick the watch? Because he's a rebirth. And so they put 10 watches. They'll do, and they'll put robes. They'll put down six or seven robes that pick the Dalai Lama robe. They'll put down... Um, you know, the plates he ate off of, but also phony ones. It's almost like a medical test, you know, where they, they give some people water and they, and they have, that's their way of doing it. That's their method. And, and if they pick them all right, which is beyond random choice for a young kid, especially if they're like six months old, they get named the new, they get taken from the family. So the family loses their child. Very. They're so happy to lose their child. They're happy. Oh, my God. They have a rebirth of the Dalai Lama in their heritage. There, there's no greater honor for a Tibetan woman than to give birth to the rebirth of the Dalai Lama. And is she and the father allowed to visit and yeah. be around the Dalai? Not Dal for a while, but yes, no, yeah, but not for a while. They got you get taken to it. His whole innocent his book said it was the only sad day of his life when he heard the door shut at the new home. When he knew that his life had changed, he wouldn't be playing with the kids in the street. He wouldn't be. You know, but it's a life of dedication. I know how hard it is to meet Shep Gordon on my podcast. How hard is it to get to meet the Dalai Lama? So, I mean, I, I got, again, I got lucky. I was living with a Hollywood actress. She invited me, Sharon Stone, she invited me to a speech he was making in L.A. Be, when he, because I was with her, we got taken backstage. When he walked in the room, I felt like I had just taken the greatest shower of my life. I don't know how else to describe it. I just felt completely clean, 
from head to toe the second he walked in the room. He came in from a side door, big smile on his face. Now it's just you and no, Sharon. No, probably 40 people in the room. Got it. So it's like meeting the president. Yeah, you're exactly. In a room. It's a meet and greet backstage. And in a line, and you go past the line. It's and like rock and roll. Exactly. It is rock and roll. It's the same. But here's the interesting thing for you, okay? Mm-hmm. So I know there's 40 people in the room, and I know immediately in my mind what's going through your mind right now. My mind went to, is he real? <laughs> a real I was a big skeptic, truly a skeptic. But when he walked in, when I, the speech was fantastic, but I tend not to... Um, there's something to me scary about people who sell knowledge. Um, and he's a religion, you know. So to me, every religion, I, you know, I'm a Jew. Um, and culturally, I love my culture. The religion is tough for me to deal with. And all the religions are tough for me to deal with. And he represented that to me at the time when I went to see him. But I knew I had read about him and I, it, it all seemed nice. <clears throat> hey, but, Kabbalah sells religion? Yeah. Yeah, which is supposed to be pretty cool, but I don't I don't know that as well. And um, <clears throat> but when he walked in the room, I was really taken, and my thought was maybe this guy's real. If he's real, I, I went to a very selfish thought. Um, wow, I would love to be around him and suck up some of that joy, you know. And um, but I met him, and I didn't think about it. But I went home to Maui, and I went into the bookstore, and there was a poster. He was coming to the Big Island to do a uh, a retreat at the Dharma Center. And in those days, he wasn't who he is today. It wasn't Secret Service and stuff. It was much calmer. So I called up Sharon. I said, give me the name of the person who invited you. And it was a fellow named Rinchin Darlow. And I called him up and I said, I went with Sharon to the thing. I think I met you there. And I live a lot of my life in the culinary arts. Hawaii has bountiful, beautiful food. And uh, the people of Hawaii, the farmers, the fishermen, would be so excited to show His Holiness what we have. Um, and he said, yes. And the next thing I knew, I was cooking for the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and they told me, have no expectations whatsoever. Um, don't, if you expect to ever see him because you're cooking for him, you shouldn't do the cooking. Um, you have to come to it with a pure um, mind. And In other words, the pure mind being that if you cook the whole meal and he doesn't show up, you're fine with it. Service. It, it, it has to be about providing the service, not him thanking you for the service. Not him asking to see you, not having an audience. It's, it's so about, what do you decide to cook? So I do some, my, I assume that he's a vegetarian, but I find out about a week before he comes that he doesn't like vegetables or salad. He, he eats his big meal in the morning. I got lucky because they wouldn't tell me much of anything because they're very gentle. But he had stayed at Fred Siegel's house of all places. And Fred Siegel's chef I got a hold of. And so it was beef stew, spaghetti and meat. He eats a big meal at five in the morning. So like a beef stew and bread or spaghetti and meatballs and um, a light lunch and then only broths at night. Uh, nothing after the sunsets. So um, so as I'm doing my research, I see uh, in Tibetan culinary uh, is a very short Wikipedia. <laughs> um, and the only thing they really have is yak, which is a cross between, I think, a goat and a cow. And um, they have yak meat. It's why he doesn't like vegetables because they're all in the mountains, so there's no, they can't grow it. It's always snowing. Um, the yak butter, out of the yak butter, they make uh, yak cheese. They do yak tea. So I had a friend who used to go to Tibet, and I got 
I smuggled in yak butter to make yak tea, thinking, oh my God, he will be so happy. If I bring him yak tea on his first day in Maui, I can't imagine doing anything better for him. It's like a chicken soup for me, if you know. Um, so I worked, and it smells so bad. It smelled up my whole house for two or three weeks. The worst smelling thing you've ever, it's like dirty socks times 100. And uh, so anyway, if, uh, but I don't think I'm ever going to see him. And I make breakfast the first morning. And Rinjin comes in and says, bring his holiness to breakfast. I said, you're kidding, me? He said, yeah, it's like 5.30 in the morning. And I'm really, now I'm sort of nervous. It's the big meal now. This is the big meal. And I got a big tray. And um, I had had a friend of mine who was a sculptor uh, make dishes that had beautiful little things at the bottom. And we put in a, a gardenia petals. And that was a beautiful thing. And the yak tea. So I go into his room and he's brushing his teeth. He's got his his robe like halfway and he's brushing his teeth and turns his head, big smile. Oh, hello. And I said, Your Holiness, I have breakfast for you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Everything is sort of a giggle with him. It talks in a giggle. And uh, then he, yak tea? <laughs> and now I, I'm getting so proud of myself. I've grown five inches in stature. My chest is out. You are the coolest guy in the world, Chef. I'm saying to myself, you actually brought some joy into his life. How great. And as, and I'm, sort of, and as I'm thinking this, I hear him say, Yak tea, oh, that's why I leave Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> and the journey began. <laughs> So he never touched the egg. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I left the room. I left the tray. I left the room. I have no idea. But he, but what I what I saw by having the blessing of being able to be near him a bunch of time, that's his. He uses his global awareness and his sense of humor to let you know the, whether he's giving a speech or meeting someone individually that he's human. You know, you can feel him feeling people. Like me, I walked into his presence in awe. I was like in awe. And that's the last thing he wants because he's the real deal. The guys who aren't the real deal want you in awe. So, I mean, I, 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 another great incident with it was uh, the second place I cooked was Trinidad. And um, in Trinidad, I had never been before, but the thing that's unique is that the cultures have never assimilated. There's no hostility, but the Africans still wear their African garb. Um, the South Americans wear their South American Indian garb when they're dressing up. There's no true Trinidadian garb. It's all these cross cultures. Um, and we'd landed at the airport, and then um, we were backstage. And I had cooked for him in Hawaii, and I cooked for him in New York, and now we're in Trinidad. And I don't know if he remembered me didn't remember me. I think someone on the airplane down probably told him who I was because when I first made eye contact, it was, I, I didn't feel any anything other than normal, no deeper than normal. Anyway, so we're backstage and he goes, oh, you cook for me, yeah? And I said, yes, your holiness. Oh, Hawaii, mm, very beautiful place. I said, yes, your holiness. And he said, New York, ooh, very crowded. I said, yes, your holiness. I said, ooh, now Trinidad. You only cook on islands? <laughs> That's I mean, so anyway, so now we're waiting and we go out into the hall. And in the hall are these beautifully dressed people, but in colorful, different things. 
And you could feel that you could hear a pin drop. This was like, you know, God's going to walk in the room. Um, and he looks around, he takes a minute, and he's at the podium. Oh, so sorry, must be in wrong room. This costume party? <laughs> <laughs> and you, nobody knew what to do. It was really awkward for like five seconds. And then he looks down, he's in his orange robes, and he goes, oh, dressed right for costume party. Good, <laughs> good. And everybody started laughing. And then he goes into what he's doing. He, he, he makes himself human. To only, and I, I, I've never discussed it with them, but to take away that edge from the people, and the, and that's that's service. That's what you do. Yeah, and that's real service. You know, that is that's being aware of of uh, and compassionate about everything in your surroundings all the time, and trying to make it more comfortable, happier. Um, so anyway, I've been lucky to see people like him and Mr. Verger who. Get so joy. I and mean, if you see his holiness, you saw him speak, he's always at the edge of a giggle. And this is a man who has the weight of losing his country on his shoulders, which he takes very seriously. I serve on his board. And he knows that he, you know, he doesn't blame himself for it, but he lost his country when he was on his on his watch. Um, and that's that's big stuff. That's I can't even compute it. And to still stay at the edge of a giggle is um, truly remarkable. You know, we think about our problems when we lose a deal, about losing a country. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you have flaws. Tell our audience what your flaws are. I would say my biggest flaw probably is um, it's easy for me to love everyone. It's very difficult for me to love one person. Um, I have to really work hard at um, uh, really loving each a person. I've, it's been hard for me in relationships in my life. Um, I see it even with the kids that I raised. I'm sort of I'm, I'm more committed to loving the planet and more detached from one-on-one. -on -one. I don't know why. I have no answer for it. But I think if there was one thing I would change in my life, um, which I don't know how to do, um, I would probably be spend more of my time in trying to develop one-on-one -on -one love, if that makes any sense. No, it does. So you spend so much time away from home. How did you or how do you create a better relationship with your children? I don't know. I, haven't been able, I mean, I have a great relationship. I think for me, I was, for things like, it's easy for me to, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a Trump supporter. It's easy for me to love him, although I don't believe any, I'm completely against just about everything he believes in. But it's really easy for me to love him as the miracle that he is, and forgive him, Lord, he knows not what he does. When my kids do something stupid, who I really love, it's hard for me not to go in my shell. And go to that same exact place of, um, I mean, I know I love them, but it's hard for me to, I don't, I, I don't know exactly how to say the words, but I react to one-on-one -on -one differently than I do to people I don't know. So in other words, if one of your children said, Dad, could I talk to you one-on-one -on -one for a few minutes next time you're in town? I'd love to just sit. And they sat down across from you. 
and they said, Dad, I love you very much. These are the things that I'd like to work on with us, and I'd like to create a better relationship with you together, and and these are the things that I want us to work on and accomplish together. I remember what you said about you pay me for yeses, mm -hmm. and one of my favorite things and my expressions that I use over and over again is turning no's into yeses. Yeah, really important. So your child comes in and reverses roles with you mm -hmm. and says, Dad, I'd like to turn these no's into yeses. Would you be able to do that yeah. and take yeah. it as a, you would? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mine, is, mine is different too. I had, you know, my kids were adopted. Um, I was a single parent. We didn't spend all the years together. They live with their grandmother and their great-grandmother, come out for summers. So it's a little different. Um, but we have, a, we have a very open relationship. It's just when I see one of them being unconscious, where I'm, if it was some, when I see someone in my life being unconscious, I confront them. Define unconscious. You know, if I see a friend of mine being, um, if I'm having dinner at someone's house and there's nobody there doing dishes and dinner's over and I get up to help and a friend of mine or a girl that I brought doesn't, I will go over to him and say, who the, f you know, hello. Hi. You know, uh, hello. <laughs> um, I don't do that with the people I'm closest to. I, I tend to go into a shell and get pissed off that they're not doing it. But you get pissed off that the Dalai Lama wasn't doing the dishes? No. Couldn't get pissed off at the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and that's a weird example, but I hope it comes across to what I mean. One of the things sitting across from you that might seem odd to you is that I love the way you are and I try to live my life, but a lot of people don't understand the underneath and the struggles underneath and the things that oh. aren't working. <laughs> oh my God. And those are the things that I think are really important yeah. for people to see, not just the yeah. how do you make things work the way you do it mm -hmm. but how do you make it things things work when it's not working for somebody else it may be working for you right. but somebody else it's that's not where it takes for. the extra effort extra time extra thought and that's and it's important that's but the same thing being like relationships with women like i mean i think it's pretty clear to the world that generally speaking i would like to think that most women want to feel safe mm -hmm. They want to feel secure. They want to know that the person they love is accessible. And they want to know that they're not going to be lonely. And occasionally, when you're with somebody who might not make the kind of living that you make, they want to know that you're going to be able to be there Supporting if they need you. So when I think of your life and how you've lived it, all of those things I just mentioned... I'm having a hard time figuring out how you provided those things to a woman that you loved. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I have. Obviously, I have. Then <laughs> <laughs> those would, you would think would be the most important thing to provide in that relationship. Uh -huh. So I think of you as one of the most, everything is, seems so zen and wonderful uh -huh. and everything with the clients and the personal life and this and the relationships and the stories but I think what people uh, realize when you make a commitment to a certain lifestyle, mm -hmm. sometimes you can't make the most important thing mm -hmm. in your life 
or at least let me say in traditional in life, traditional life work. absolutely i mean obviously relationships yeah. and love are you know you're in the music business maybe alice cooper is an example of this <laughs> but you turn on the radio and most every song is either about a wonderful relationship a relationship yeah. that went relationship sour yeah. uh making up breaking up i think most great songs come from some sense of pain or joy inside you and that relationships drive all that so in your relationships your personal relationships with women you love do you go into the relationship in the beginning like okay i know this is going somewhere but i just want to let you know this is my life and chances are you're not going to be happy with me in a, in a year no, or th- i don't i for me different i i i um I've always wanted a relationship. Um, part of the reason I retired was that I realized I was living other people's lives and never gave myself a chance to live my life. So I wanted to see what my life was, and I ended up getting married at 60. I was married very young here in L.A. for a couple of months. It was got annulled. It was one of, just one of those things. Married a great girl who was a playmate. And it just was, we were, it was too fast and wild. and. Um, but so my first real marriage was at 60 after I retired and decided to try and find a life. What was the age difference? Uh, 30 years. 30 year uh, age difference. Yeah, we actually was, she was 30 years and her birthday is September 4th. My birthday is October 18th and we got married between the windows so it would be 29 years difference. <laughs> Before I met you, Chef, I really had a lot of respect for you. Yeah. Now after I've talked to you, you're my fucking hero. <laughs> Had a so great I'm, girl and we're still friends. I'm going back to Thailand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll come with you. <laughs> That's fantastic. I am having the best time of my life. I don't even... This is incredible. All right. Let's go way, way back. I'm going to go way, way back. We're going to try to figure out how you got to where you were. How did I get fucked up? up? So take me back to the town you grew up in, your mom and dad, your family, what kind of socioeconomic dynamic that was, and what was your first inspiration to being in the entertainment business? What happened? Um, Raised in the suburbs, right? When the suburbs really first started to happen, there was um, the first generation of of American-born from immigrants started to make enough money to move outside of the city and provide a better life for their families. A place called Levittown was the first suburb. Of course. We were in that wave. We moved from Queens to Long Island to a a real house with a backyard and three bedrooms. And, um, you know, every house was the same on the block. I think the house was $8,000. My dad made, in his big year, $9,000, but we never wanted for anything. very middle-class life. My mother was very, very tough Jewish lady. And I, I think if you're Jewish, you understand what I'm saying. There's a certain, in many of the families, the first wave particularly, who were children of the Depression, their parents, um, there was very dominant women and very docile men in a lot of the Jewish homes. And I, I was in one of them. And my mother was... Um, for whatever reason, not her purpose in life was not to spread joy. <laughs> this was not, we had a different consciousness. Did you ever see your mother tell your dad that she loved him? No. 
Do you ever see your dad tell your mom that she's no, not even part of the equation? Do you see a correlation oh, possibly yeah, no, no, I, I, in yeah. how you are? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I always, I've, I've, it was funny. Up until I wrote the book, I always felt that the guiding force of my life was my anger at my mother for the way she treated me, and always gave that the reason for maybe my relationships with women weren't working. <laughs> although I could never draw the complete line. Now we all know there's stories of people who were homeless, no one told them that they loved them, and they used that to fuel them to have a mm -hmm. wonderful life. Mm -hmm. And then there's the people that you hear, their parents loved each other, they told them they loved them every day. Do you think sometimes the most successful people are the ones that didn't get the love? Because yeah. I wonder when I tell my uh, kids 10 times a day that I love them, I wonder if that means that they're going to be strung out. And... I don't think. I think I've seen some really wonderful, successful people who came from amazing families. So there's hope. Yeah. Okay. Hope. All right, keep going. So you were saying you were angry at your mom. So um, well, as I wrote the book, I realized that um, I'm sort of living my dad's life because he lived of service. He, my, my impression of my life growing up was that my dad worked 24-7 to feed me and my brother and my mother, pay for the house. He had no life. He had no social life. No, I didn't know till way late in my life who he was before marriage, which was this wild party animal. I never even, it wasn't even a thing. So he really gave up his life in service and was always joyful was always happy we laughed and you know but um but I, in my house my brother had a dog and the dog was very vicious so it, it uh i never had a friend at the house because no one would come in the first, one kid came in and got 30 stitches so nobody else ever came in and i didn't leave my room much because the dog would bite me so i was basic i would play basketball till it was dark and then I would go and sit in my room and they'd bring dinner to the room basically because I couldn't leave the room. Why would your parents keep the dog? I would ask my dad, you know, my mom was nasty, so she would just say, your brother wants to be a veterinarian and he needs to have dogs. So can't you keep the dog on a leash in they, the corner? They did keep it in the, in the utility room a lot of the time. It was in a leash in the backyard and it was in the utility <laughs> room, but it would bark all the time and I was just scared. I was really, it bit me if I still have a bunch of scars. So chances are you never owned a dog. I never owned a dog, yeah. No, my friends put the dogs away when I come over. So I spent a lot of time alone. And um, when I went to college, I always felt like that was the first day of my life. Um, I always defined that as the first real day of my life. And um, went to college, didn't take it very seriously. Um, ran poker games, started to deal drugs get through college, went to graduate school, new school for social research. Let's start here for a second. How old were you when you took your first drug and what was it? I was a sophomore in college. It was a joint of marijuana and uh, I loved it. A guy named Jerry Singer, who I'm seeing next Thursday in New York, who lives in St. John's, we're still friends. And then the second drug I took was Robitussin AC, <laughs> the cough syrup. <laughs> As Chris Rock would say, the Tussin. And I remember that I was I was reading a Harold Robbins novel. <laughs> and I read the same sentence for two and a half hours. On Robitussin. On my first time on Robitussin. I remember it so clearly. Do they still make that, Brent? I don't know. It was Robitussin AC. I think they only, they only make the other one. 
we we found a pharmacist in Buffalo who would sell us gallon jugs of Robo AC. Then <laughs> 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 I went to um, the new school. I didn't like the new school at all. Um, and um, <laughs> but I through that through those were days when you you know you could still be empowered. Um, we we burned ROTC car. We burned ROTC buildings. We we burned our draft cards. It was a time when we felt like a, a generation of people felt that we could affect things, and we're social liberals. I always had this image of myself on a white horse, saving the day. You know, scooping up the princess and saving the day. So at, at the new school, some, um, and it was a Reagan era in California. I was a long hair, but then I was an acid head. Reagan was the enemy, and they came to recruit for probation officers in the state of California to the new school. And I said, I'm going to go out there on my white horse and save these kids in the probation department. So I got a job at Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall. This is a long way to get to how I was a manager. No, it's perfect. <laughs> so I go to it's Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall. And I'm a long hair. It's Reagan. I could tell the other guards didn't want me there. They took, let me go out and play softball with the kids. And they all left, and I became the baseball. And they didn't really hurt me, but they hit me with the bat. They, I knew I didn't want to be there. They didn't want me there. So I drove into town that night. I checked into a motel, like Hotel California kind of motel, two stories around the pool. Took a little acid, um, thinking about how, how screwed up my life is. I have maybe $800 in my pocket. I don't have a job. I just got beat up my first day in California for our first week. And I hear a girl screaming. I think she's getting raped because I just come from a jail. I don't know why I thought that, but I run down to the pool. I separate these two people. The girl punches me. I go to the pool in the morning. She was Janice Joplin. She's sitting with um, all these rock stars, Jimi Hendrix. Jim Morrison, the Chambers Brothers. It was the landmark motel, which is where Janice ended up dying a couple of years later on Franklin Avenue, right next to the Magic Castle. The hotel's still there, but it's not called the Hollywood Landmark anymore. And um, I started selling uh, my, my goods to the, uh, to the rock stars. And one day... Uh, I think it was Lester Chambers said to me, uh, we were with Jimi Hendrix and a bunch of people, and I was with my partner, Joe Greenberg, at the time. Joe and I started Alive Enterprises together, and um, he had moved into the landmark with me. You started your business, but you're also selling drugs on the side? We're, no, we're, at this point, we're just selling drugs. So now we're partners selling drugs. We're in the landmark motel. Chambers brothers, Jimi Hendrix, say to us, what do you guys do for a living other than sell drugs? We just sell drugs. Uh, Lester Chambers says, you know, if you come from Watts, where I came from, and you have a new watch, the cop is going to ask you, where'd you get the money for the watch? So what are you going to tell someone? How do you live here? You sell drugs? And I said, you know, I'm a Jewish kid from Long Island. I don't, that's not part of my life. And uh, I think it was Jimmy or Lester said, you guys Jewish? And we said, yeah, you should be managers. And... Uh, <laughs> It makes sense. Who should we manage? And I said, we, the, Lester has this freak uh, from Phoenix in his basement, a guy named Alice Cooper. I bet you if I tell him I found the Jew to manage, he, can you afford any money? 
And I said, yeah, I could give him $10, 20 a week. Because we you know, that was money in those days. Why, why would you give the artist To 10? say I manage them, so I had a cover for my drug selling. I wasn't a manager. In other words, they're giving me a cover. Got it. You need a cover. They're street guys. I'm not a street guy. Street guys think that way. So they go to Alice. Alice tells a story. One day, Lester Chambers comes in and says, I found that everybody needs a Jew to manage them. I found the Jewish guy, and he'll give you $20 a week. And now you're kidding. <laughs> We're in. So they come to the motel, and I start managing them. Okay. So Alice is living in the basement of whose house? Lester, uh, Lester Chambers? Lester Chambers and Watts. In Watts. Yeah. And Alice is how old then? He was underage because when we got a record contract shortly thereafter, his parents had to come in for court approval. Probably 17. What was his real name? Uh, Vincent Fernier. But they had already changed their name to Alice Cooper. For the band, but what's weird, always confusing to me back right. then. Is he because, was Vincent. He wasn't Alice. Yeah. Always confusing Vincent. to me yeah. is when you said, I'm going to see Alice Cooper, that's Alice Cooper. Right. He was Vincent. And, and that the, came about from a PR lady named Pat Kingsley. I know Pat Kingsley, PMK, yeah. who are one of the greatest publicists of all time. At a benefit recently, Alice Cooper was playing. And it said Alice Cooper is playing along this benefit. And there was a house band. And if I'm not mistaken, he came out yeah, 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 and yeah, sang. Yeah, yeah. And it was, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome yeah. Alice Cooper. It wasn't, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Vincent Fournier yeah, from no, Alice I'll Cooper. You, I'll tell you the story. So um, the band was, in my opinion, not very good, which was a positive because it meant I wouldn't have to do any. I, don't, I didn't know what to do as a manager. I didn't want to do any work. The worst thing that could happen to me is anybody liked them because then I had to do something. So, and they were horrible, in my opinion. And I'm, I say it to Alice's face, and he laughs about it. He says... He always says that we met on a lie. Shep told me he was a manager. I told him I was a singer, <laughs> which is, <laughs> and it was sort of true. Um, so anyway, everybody starts get, getting busted around me. Um, my connections are getting busted. Everybody, I got to get out of the business. What am I going to do for a living? I like the band. So we had a meeting and I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to become a millionaire somehow. If you want to try and do this together, we'll figure out how to make it work. Um, if not, no problem. But if we do it, let's shake hands. We stay together to one mill. And that's what we did. And um, one of the first things I did was um, ask Lester, and, you know, how do you do this? And they introduced me to a guy named Albert Grossman because Paul Rothschild was living there and Janice's manager was Grossman. And he explained to me a little bit, you got to get a lawyer, you got to get a PR person, you got to get a so PR person they recommended was Pat Kingsley. Took all the guys to her office, took a meeting. She asked me to have the guy step out of the office, and she said, listen, Shep, I don't know how to make five guys named Alice Cooper or stars. Give me one guy. Call him Alice Cooper. That I know how to do. So I went back into the lobby, and I said, we got to pick one of you to be Alice Cooper. <laughs> she said, we have to do it. <laughs> so we voted. Alice became Alice Cooper. We changed his name legally to Alice Cooper. Wait, you're trying to tell me that when you walked out in the hallway of PMK, yeah. there were five band members there. and Who had shook hands to all be together till we were millionaires. And so those five members, when you went in the hallway, you're actually saying to me that the drummer thought to himself, hey, there's a shot I could be Alice Cooper. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. No, we all talked about it. who's the best person to do interviews, who's the best talker. He was the lead singer. It just made sense for him to be Got Alice it. Cooper. Okay. Um, and they was, were okay with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was no, it wasn't even a question. We just did it. We went to court, got the name changed, um, and off we went until... But there was never a name of the band. It's Tom it Petty and the was, Heartbreakers. It's well, not, it was weird because we were different. Because we had, we had made this agreement, we were all in it together. So whether one person had the name, what ended up happening... You can tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. I'd be stunned if you can look me in the eye and tell me that all five band members were favored nations and made the same yeah, amount oh yeah, of money. Absolutely. Exactly the same. Not one penny difference. Not one penny So difference. Vincent never made more money than Well, the I'll tell drummer. you the end of the story, which is very public and it's in their books and it's in our books, that split everything exactly equal. Not one penny different. And what ended up happening was that Alice started to have to work 10 hours a day and they didn't have to do anything. Because when we got successful, he's doing every press conference, he's doing every interview. He's doing, his day was a nightmare. He turns into a horrible alcoholic. He didn't have five seconds to himself. These guys are out driving Rolls Royces playing golf um, and they come to do their show. Alice was you know, up every morning at seven o'clock do 50 interviews. Um, it was tough, but we were all in it together. That's what we had picked. That was his job. We had all agreed on it. We shook hands. It wasn't even a question. He never asked for a penny more. I never suggested a penny more. And then over time, they started to get jealous of him getting the attention. And I would sit him down and say, guys, you split the money equally. He does all the work. How about thank you? Like, they would, I, we'd get into fights about, we'd land at an airport at 12 o'clock. He'd have to be at a TV station at 12.30. All they had to do was go to the hotel. They would go get really pissed off that the car dropped him first. How come he always gets dropped first instead of us? Well, he's going to work. He's got to be there to work for you guys. And it, it started to get, and then they started to say, when, you know, they started to get to a point where, Nobody respects what we do. Um, they only respect Alice. And then for the first time in our history, they called a band meeting. And it was like, you're calling a band meeting? Oh, Without God. Vincent? No, everybody. But I always did. <clears throat> I was the only one who called band meetings. They never called band meetings. Did they, you know how they're in, in sports, there's player-only meetings and then there's right. player-coach meetings. They, they did some band meetings without were you, me. Were you in the, that meeting? Most of them, but this meeting I was in. Definitely. Okay. And we sit down. And, Who leads uh, the meeting? Um, Mike Bruce, the guitar player, says, you know, um, we've decided, we've all talked and we've decided we want to do solo projects and we'll come back together in a while, but we, we want to get some respect. We, we don't think we have any respect. And I said, listen, guys, we shook hands. We're in this, we're almost there with the number one act in the world. We're just about to get a check. We're, you know, we're six. We, we were in 72. We were the biggest act in the world. Um, we're going to be millionaires in a blink. After we're millionaires, do whatever you want to do. But holy shit, come on. And I'm not going to stay with you. I'm, I'm staying with Alice. If we really split up, I want you to understand, him and I are never coming back. And you gave us everything. He's got the name. Like, you're out of your minds. <laughs> and I couldn't talk him out of it. And we were very honest with them, and you can read in all the books about it. And they went and did solo projects, and we went and did Welcome to My Nightmare. And um, 
So that's why Alice Cooper is Alice Cooper. And if you don't dig beneath, beneath the surface, it seems really weird. When you get beneath the surface, it's life is a weird game. Sometimes you, you agree to stuff and it happens. There's a song by Lucas Graham called Seven Years. And in the song, he talks about how when he he made it, he he kept some people with him, but he had to leave some behind. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm still sorry. It's tough. Song. Oh, no, it's very, it's, we're very friendly, by the way. Still very friendly. Oh, yeah. yeah. All of us very friendly. Um, they're going to play with Alice. They're, they're writing some songs together right now. They're going to play with him at a benefit he's doing. Um, I see him in New York when I'm there. We're, we've all stayed because it's, did they ever, any one of them ever come to you alone and say, at any point in your career or life, say, hey, I just wanted to take you aside and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong? No. Um, but I, not only because they, they didn't have to. You know, we've all, the hardest thing I think for Alice and I is to um, realize what they let go. And we did sort of what we had to do. But they're, they're our family. They're our brothers. Um, we, we went through the wars together. And one of the guys is dead now. And, um, but it's grown-ups making choices. And you have to live with the choices you make. And that's the choices they made. So, you know, I... I uh, you want to know how impactful Alice Cooper was for me? And this is weird because you, would, you wouldn't even believe this mm -hmm. is the case. But... Um, I I don't think in my whole years up to being 18, maybe if I had half a beer, it was a miracle. Mm -hmm. When I went to college, I, I never did coke. Mm -hmm. I never did acid. I, I don't believe that I smoked marijuana one time in college. You're the guy who didn't do anything. I knew there was one somewhere. <laughs> didn't do anything. <laughs> Yet... I believe it was, tell me, was it 75 or 74, uh, 18? No, 70, earlier. 70 or 71. Okay. Yeah. So 70, 71, whatever it was. And that song just resonated yeah, with me. Really, and yeah, I yeah. remember it would yeah. be on the radio and I would be screaming mm -hmm. the lyrics mm -hmm. to the song over and over yeah. again. One of my favorite songs for years. Yeah. It was like an anthem. Mm -hmm. Yet it wasn't an anthem for me, for people like me. I was like a guy who did nothing. Right. I wasn't a rebel, right. but I loved yeah. the song. No, it hit a certain. It hit and a, I loved yeah. the theatrical nature of how he presented himself. Yeah. And but I wasn't anything like that. So it was almost like an alter ego for uh -huh. me that I was probably hiding inside. Yeah. When you started with Alice. You're dealing drugs. You don't even have a business plan. If somebody tells you you're a Jew, you're going to be a manager, go find this guy. You have no system. You have nothing in place. You have no contacts, no relationships. How do you figure out how to make it work so quickly? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if uh, it may seem quickly from the outside. You met Alice what year? Yeah, 69. We, 69. 69. Yeah, so Two that. years later, he has the number one yep. song in the world with a Jewish manager <laughs> who was dealing drugs. <laughs> How think, does that happen? You know, I, I think um, 
we, I hate to keep using the word lucky because people always say it's not luck, but we did get lucky in that um, when I was at the New School for Social Research, one of the classes in the short time I was there, one of the lectures, the guy talked about um, the difference between cultural phenomenons and art. I don't know why he went there, but it, and he said that art's very abstract. It draws a narrow audience. So some people like Picasso, some like Warhol, some like... Same thing in entertainment. But the big people of our times, Elvis Presley, um, Frank Sinatra, the thing they all had in common was parents who were against them. And kids, every child goes through a period of rebellion. And he talked about Ed Sullivan show with Elvis Presley. When his hips couldn't be shown on the, Elvis Pres on the Ed Sullivan show, that turned Elvis Presley into an overnight gigantic sensation because every parent said, oh, is this disgusting? I hope you don't like this. And kids jumped to it. So we decided early on that forget about the kids, let's piss off parents. And that's where everything came from. And it worked because nobody was playing to the, to the parents. So for us, we couldn't get in Rolling Stone magazine. But if we did something like throw a chicken off a stage or tell people we're drinking the blood of chickens, we could get in Newsweek or we could get on the on the we could get to things parents saw where they could tell their kids, "Oh my God, is this disgusting? I hope you're not into Alice Cooper," you know. And that always, you know, I remember the first time I heard a hip hop record coming out of my kids' room, and I said, "Get that shit off the! What are you doing?" And as I said it, I realized that was just going to drive them more to the hip hop. Because that's the way I built my business. Um, so I think we got, in a way, we got lucky. So when you met Alice, sorry, when you met Vincent, right. he wasn't wearing any makeup. No. When you first they saw They were wearing dresses. They had just bought um, the ice capades. I had done a, in a thrift shop, they bought like $10 worth of ice capades outfits. So they had these great sparkly dresses. It was the worst thing when, I ever saw. When you first saw him perform, <laughs> was were they was he wearing makeup? No. Okay. So tell our audience what was the inspiration for the theatrical presentation that I don't remember ever seeing from any band up until that point. Uh, it was a combination of um, naivety because they weren't really a band. They had started as a track team skit. And they put on wigs and Maybelline paper guitars and Maybelline they were the Beatles and girls screamed. Mm -hmm. And they liked the girls screaming, so they decided to put a band together and take music lessons. Um, they were art students. Dali was a very big influence on them. So Dali, if you think about our stuff, is a, they're almost Dali paintings. They're so abstract. Um, he was starting, he changed their name to Alice Cooper, which lent itself to these dresses. What was the second choice? Uh, I, don't, I wasn't there, but they said it came on a Ouija board. And Alice says that it, he wanted to have the most American name he could think of. Um, so he wanted to have a female name. Not so much female, but American. And when they hit Alice Cooper on a Ouija board, he said, that's an American name. No, there's no one going to believe that I'm Alice, that these five guys with hair down to there are called Alice Cooper. I remember it was the five guys. It wasn't him. So it was a group. So it was trying to find something for shock value like Salvador Dali. Um, 
and that just we just kept building on that and build. The first time I saw him, he was he was doing a song called "Nobody Likes Me," and they had a door on the stage, and he had his head out the door. So they had started theatrically presenting their music even when I first came to him. Incredible. So they become the number one band in the world within two years. As always happens when you're in the business, when something great happens, people gravitate uh -huh. to you and they think you're a rainmaker. Right. They think you can make anything <laughs> happen. Who was the next band or musical artist that realized that or thought to themselves, I got to be managed by this guy? Um, next one was Ann Murray. Kind of a very bizarre <laughs> departure from... Sort of my pick more than hers. How uh, could you go from Alice Cooper to I Anne wanted Murray. to go as far as I could possibly go to see um, if I had any actual talent. Like if any of the things that I was doing, any of the thoughts I had for Alice. Um, Where do you see Ann Murray? She's not performing in the clubs. I'm up that... in Toronto. I'm doing a uh, concert with John Lennon. His only concert with the Plastic Only Band in those days. And Jim Morrison on the show. I got Alice on that show. Jim Morrison was on the show. No, uh, yeah, the Doors were on the show. It was the Doors, Gene Vincent, Alice, John Lennon, and somebody else um, at Varsity Stadium in Toronto. It was in, they were used, the chicken, it was a feral chicken I threw on stage with Alice. And the chicken story is sort of what made Alice work. Where did the idea come from for the chicken? Uh, chicken. We the chicken started. We were trying to, we trying to figure out how to um, do something. We didn't have any money. How do how do we do something that's exciting and cool? We're doing places like the Whiskey a Go Go, and um, lighting was just starting to happen. There was um, a place in San Francisco that start, the Lights weren't a big part of the concert thing, but then this. With the Grateful Dead, they started doing kaleidoscope lighting and all. And all of a sudden, there was there was lighting, um, and we we um, I had a pillow feather, a feather pillow in a hotel I stayed at. We did a show in Orange County, and uh, there was a CO2 extinguisher in the hallway, fire extinguisher, and I just got this idea of what you know if we took the fire extinguisher, ripped the feather pillow. All chicken feathers in those lights would be spectacular. What a great way to end the show! Give it a bang. I was a little, always looking for stuff to supplement the music because I didn't have as much faith in the music as maybe I would have liked to have. Um, and it worked great, so we did it every night. Chicken feathers, um, at the end of every show. CO2 tank, blow the feathers everywhere. And then when we did Toronto, there were these actual live chickens backstage. So I said. Let me throw a chicken on stage, see what happens. This could be pretty disgusting. <laughs> but I didn't tell Alice. And uh, he was doing the encore in the chicken. He looked down at the chicken. He thought the chickens could fly, and he threw it at the audience. And uh, the audience destroyed it. And the next day, the newspaper said, Alice bites the head off a chicken and sucks the blood. And Why did they say that? I have no idea. But it was the greatest thing that ever happened to us. It was unbelievable. And when he commented on it... He was odd was never said he didn't bite the head off the chicken. Oh, never. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? That's the greatest thing ever happened. That was exactly it. what we wanted parents to think. Um, and your story uh, started with Ann Murray. 
So, um, so I wanted to see that the same kind of things work, not the chicken being bit off, but this, you know, can I, can I create history to get the message out that I'm trying to get out? Um, and so I started working with Ann Murray and I, you know, um, the message I really wanted to get out with Ann Murray was that even though she was, um, very white bread bland, she was an great great artist which she was she had great uh chops her voice was so pure um so i still i i used with alice a thing i called guilt by association i would have out get pictures of alice with pele or pictures famous people and the fame bleeds off so i got um my my crowning moment with her is i got john lennon harry nielsen alice and mickey dolas to take a picture with her on stage which just skyrocketed because John Lennon was inaccessible in those days. It was his, it was black period. And Mickey Dolan's, uh, who Mikey's I interviewed on the podcast, yeah. was started as an actor. Yeah. And the band put together as actors, uh -huh. and he ended up for one or two years being the biggest star and, in the world and the greatest guy. Just Wonderful. a great guy, great daughter. His daughter was an actress for a while. I don't know if she still is. And he ended up being Alice's next door neighbor for a while. So um, for me, that was the challenge was to see, you know, do the management skills that everyone is telling me I'm a genius for and I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> work for someone else. And then uh, Alice turned me on to Groucho Marx who needed some help, so I, uh, he was my third. Now, Groucho Marx, yeah. how old is he when you meet him? 70s. It's almost senile, but not... You know. How does Alice know Groucho Marx? Alice met him, they became good friends. And Alice started going over and lying in bed with him at night watching TV till he fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I walked in, they both had Mickey Mouse ears on to Alice and Groucho, and they were in bed watching a TV show. And um, I didn't do much for Groucho, but he needed resources. He was, he, he was very light on resources. So I got the TV show back on the air, and I did some licensing deals. And, you know, he was a great man. When you'd go to Groucho's house to have dinner, you had to perform after dinner. That was the rule of coming to dinner. The price of dinner was performing. What if you're not a performer? Well, he still had to perform. And he had um, Bud Court, Jeff Bridges. Bud Court played piano. You're the actor from uh, Harold and Mort. Jeff Bridges played guitar, and Marvin Hamlish played piano. And that was sort of one of those three would be there as your accompaniment. So um, if you, like Alice, read poetry. And he had Marvin behind him, which was close to his thing, but Groucho let him get away with it. I would read contracts. <laughs> I would get up and I'd get a big arpeggio from like, you know, Bud Cork. <laughs> Where to Ford? I'd get maybe three words in. Get him out of here, Groucho. <laughs> he'd always look at me. Where, whenever there was someone else in the room, he'd look at me real hard. Look at the other guy. Look at me. Wait till everyone noticed him looking at me. You shep my manager? <laughs> and I say, yeah, gradually. Hmm, funny, you don't look like a crook. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then Raquel Welsh, which was fantastic. She called me up. My secretary said, Raquel Welsh, show the phone. And I said, come on, Raquel Welsh, show the phone. You know, you're kidding me. She was like, and another uh, no, she's on the phone. She was, are you the you that guy who made that freak famous? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, Academy Awards are tomorrow night. I'm picking you up at 7. You're taking me there. 
That's your first call from Raquel Welch. My first call from Raquel. I took an Academy Award. How old is she then? I have no idea. But I'm young and sweaty and my armpits are like, you know. <laughs> like, I think I wore a green suit which turned black from the sweat. <laughs> and we, in those days, the Academy Awards were very different. It was... Um, if she, if that, when that call came in, my first words would be, who canceled? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, but there was uh, Johnny somebody. I can't remember his name. It was Mister Hollywood, and you would you'd see him. He'd be talking, and the car would pull up, and then he'd put his head in the car with the microphone to say hello to the person who came. It wasn't as much of a red carpet, and we pull up in the thing, and I'm nervous. I'm sweating. I'm crazy. And she turns to me with this big smile and says. The back of my dress just ripped. You have to hold it or it's going to fall off. And there's this little chiffon dress. Now I'm holding Raquel Welch's dress. Newsweek took a picture and they said, Raquel Welch with unnamed escort. <laughs> was the, the caption in the magazine. Uh, but she was. I really enjoyed working with her. And that was a great challenge because that was um, really putting dough together. You know, her, she was a, um, as she said to me, I'm a, a movie star who's getting older and I need to support my family. I have a young daughter and a son and I need to make money. And um, I need to figure out something I can do with this fame that I have and this sex appeal that'll translate into money because I'm not going to get it in movies. And um, so I put together a song and dance review for her. We played Vegas and a lot of places and but it was really fun because she was good to work with. She learned. She was a hard worker, and um, it really allowed me to to, to mold the dough. Um, and it was great fun. Tell me the first artist that you worked with, whether successful or not, where you failed. They came into your office, or they called you, and they said, "Shep, you're fired." Yeah. Never got, uh, never got fired. You've never been fired. Uh, never been fired. I, I mutually, um, I had one client who wanted me to come. I will be unnamed. Who wanted me to um, be best man at his wedding? It was a naked wedding, and it was a drug-induced naked wedding. And I said I can't do it. And he said, you know, I, you need, you're my manager. You need to do this. And I said, you know, I think we should agree just not to work together. If that's what you think my role is, you have such a, you and I have such a complete difference and I get it and I understand it, but I'm, uh, so I've had, I've had that. Who else? Luther. So I would say no for different reasons. Yeah. Basically, I wouldn't want to subject anybody to looking at me naked. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to do that. And I never had contracts with people, so it was very simple. There were times, but I did have failures. Luther Vandross is the only client I had that I had, uh, I didn't, that stopped talking to me. It was after I resigned. I resigned with, from everybody. I retired about 12 years ago. So, so you so you just called everybody up and you just... Yeah, I, I, it was, a, you know, everything I've done in my life has been a knee-jerk sort of reaction. Um, I never really thought about stuff. I just, if it feels right, I do it. And I, I had a premiere in L.A. at Universal, one of my movies, you know, a really star-studded, gigantic premiere. I was bored to death bored to death 
And um, I flew to Maui the next day and I got on my hammock and I was alone at sunset having a cocktail and every molecule in my body was excited. And I sort of said to myself, what's it all about? Like, what, what is it all about? Like a successful premiere and a miserable, lying on my hammock, I'm happy. Why would I choose to be at the premiere? And I went back to LA a couple of days later and uh, called the Vallis and I said, where are you? And he said, I'm in LA. And I said, pick me up at lunch because I need to get very drunk. I'm resigning from everybody today except you. And uh, I resigned from everybody. Um, and everybody was very happy for me except Luther. He, was, he felt I had abandoned him. I had about 35 clients and about 100 chefs. The chefs I did by email, except for a couple, um, the artists I all called. But as I was leaving the office that day, so I went through, he was the only one, we stayed on the phone an hour, and I said, listen, I just need to do this for me. I'm not abandoning you, but I don't, I realize I, I don't even know what my life is. I've been running your life and 30 other people's lives for so many years. I don't even know what my, I don't have a life. Um, I want to see if I actually have a life and, and what it is. Um, and um, as I was leaving, Alice came, picked me up, we're going to leave. And my secretary says, uh, you got to take this call. And I said, I'm not taking any more calls. I'm done. It's finished. It's over. <laughs> I'm going to Bowie. Lisa's up on the place. Um, I, I, I had a meeting with everybody in the office and told all my clients they could stay with people in the office, which most of them did. They all opened their own management companies shortly thereafter. A lot of them are still with them. Gypsy King still with one of the guys. Kenny Loggins still with one of the guys. And it was George Harrison. And they had just found the lost tapes. And he asked me if I would um, manage that project. These were the lost tapes they found. The BBC tapes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he asked to what? If I would, you know, take, sort of manage that process. And uh, it was the Beatles. How do you say no to the Beatles? So I did that in the anthology, and Luther found out that I was doing it. And he just freaked out that I would abandon him and then go do that project. So he's the only one I've ever had. I sadly passed away because he's a great artist and had a lot of respect for him. But um, so I did those two projects and sort of got out. I did the anthology and the BBC. Um, Incredible, but I always kept Alice because he's—I don't manage Alice. I'm, it's like a body part, <laughs> you know. It's uh, it's very different than any other relationship I've ever had. Incredible. I think most people want to figure out how they can create a better life and what would happen if they actually nothing happened. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, if I had the advantage of seeing. Having retired, not I probably wouldn't have done it. It's exactly the same. I always go back. Yeah, don't wouldn't want to do that. I mean, I did. I went back and did the Hollywood Vampires this year with Johnny Depp and a couple of things. But um, I don't regret. But I, it didn't change anything, except that I don't have a staff, and I don't get paid for what I do. But other than that, it's the same rhythm. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to name a name. Tell me anything that comes to mind. And keep in mind that I have three quick questions after this. Okay. So, John Carpenter. Um, genius in what he does. Um, genius. Jessica Lange. Um, gorgeous. Um, 
really talented and um, would have loved to have gone out with her. <laughs> Anthony Bourdain. Amazing. Uh, I'm a groupie. Kenny Loggins. Love Kenny. Um, just love him. He's a great, great man. Had a, uh, we had a special connection. Um, I, when I started working with him, I, I told him the only, he was doing a lot of soundtracks, and I said, the only, the only way I can really help you is if you really start uh, producing product from your heart. And he went and he wrote an album, and I came to listen to it, and it was about breaking up with his wife, who was standing outside the window while I was listening to the album. And I said, has she heard this yet? And he said, no. I said, I, I would burn the album. <laughs> and he didn't, and they got divorced. <laughs> but he was true to himself, and he's a good man. Emeril Lagasse. Um, there's nobody better. He's, he's, um, he's just an amazing friend, and... Nobody better. He loves service. I'm going to see him Monday night. Um, he's at this benefit. Just a great man. Really lucky to have him in my life. Deborah Harry and Blondie. Uh, Deborah was fantastic. Really great to work with. Um, we ended one of the, one of the few acts that we ended very mutually. Um, and um, I wish that I could have been a bigger influence on them. Um, but a great girl. Wolfgang Puck. Wolfgang Puck, a great artist, um, was a um, a difficult businessman because he was so focused on what he wanted. So it was difficult for me, but um, a lot of respect for him, and he's the one who really put me in the chef business. Mike Myers. Um, unbelievable. I mean, what can I say? The guy devoted two years of his life to telling my story. So I have nothing but gratitude and admiration, and I am so happy to see the life that he's found. He has beautiful children, beautiful wife. Um, over the course of the last 10 years, I've seen such a beautiful metamorphosis in him. Wes Craven. You know, another genius. We had a difficult business relationship, one of the few I've ever had in my life. What made it difficult? Um, I didn't feel he was reasonable with me. Um, I just didn't, I, I, I felt that he forgot um, the, the balance sheet of what we did for each other. Um, and sometimes that happens in business. But it's, it's very rare that, um, that I worked with artists and um, we weren't appreciative of each other. You know, it's weird you say that because you're talking about the Dalai Lama and your philosophy and his philosophy on life. And if he came and you worked so hard all day long, all night, cooking that meal for him, and he didn't say thank you, or if he didn't mm -hmm. eat it and just left it, that you were to feel just as grateful yeah. as if he had it. Yet, in the artist world, when somebody isn't that way... It, no, this was different. This was a different... This was very different. Um, this was... Um, without going into the details of it, and and... Everybody sees things from two sides, and he's a wonderful man. And, but we were in a business relationship where um, I, um, I used a lot of my resources, which I didn't have to, to get him through some of his problems, um, millions and millions of dollars um, that I wasn't responsible for. But 
chose to not allow him to bear the burden, even though he made the choices that cost the money. And then we reached a situation where someone wanted to give me a lot of money that wouldn't have cost him any money. And he wouldn't allow him to do it. And it was, it's not coming from you. It only helps me. Why would you, after what I did in our relation, at least what I think I did, and we couldn't see eye to eye on it, and it, it was so abstract that it just, I couldn't find a reason to continue the relationship. Um, I, I, without getting specific, it's probably hard to hear, but if you know the movie world, so he did movies for me, and he, he went over millions and millions of dollars, and I never, I had a contract where he would have to pay it, and I never made him. It came out of my pocket. And then he did a sequel for, he did a movie for the Weinstein Company, and was very successful, and I let him out of his obligations for me, and Harvey wanted to give me a lot of money. <laughs> Interesting. Janice Joplin. Uh, fantastic. So sad that she died so early. David Letterman. Um, unbelievable. Um, he um, reached out to me to be on his show and uh, wrote me a couple of handwritten letters, which I realize here is um, very unusual. The handwritten letter. Handwritten the letters. The greatest. About coming, having dinner with him, which we haven't done yet. And I just reached out to his lawyer because I don't have his email to say I'm coming to New York and I'd uh, love to have the dinner. So if you're here, listening, David, let's have dinner. I was a producer on his first television show, one of the greatest times of my life. Jimi Hendrix. Uh, amazing. What a genius. And last one on here, Sharon Stone. Uh, beautiful inside and out. Awesome. Last three questions. Your proudest moment in show business. Uh, Alice getting in the Hall of Fame. This is one of the reasons why I didn't mention Alice, because I had a feeling you would say that. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely the proudest moment. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. Um, I don't know if I used it to fuel to the next level, but I think my biggest disappointment, there was a, a couple of African artists, King Sunny Day and Magic Fashik, who I really tried to change their lives, and I wasn't successful. Um, and I, I, I would have liked to have been. Last question. What advice would you give to the young drug dealer? <laughs> Come see me. Selling drugs. What Stop to get by a, my house. What to get into. The, the, uh, <laughs> that didn't come out right. <laughs> what advice would you give to the young person out there who wants to be in the entertainment business, wants to have a great career, doesn't know how to get there and have the kind of career you've had, but also... What advice do you have? You work with so many artists who are geniuses, great people. What advice do you have for them, the path to get to the next level as well? And that's the last question. I would say uh, get up earlier than everybody else, work harder, um, and try and find some mentors. Um, I think the entertainment business, unlike surgery, is um, very hard to navigate through, through book learning. And... Um, if you can find a human resource who's generous enough to share with you, um, work hard at finding mentors. And the only way you're going to find them is telling them you want to you you want to be a you know you want them to be your mentor. Don't be shy. People can say no, 
if I hadn't reached out to His Holiness, I would never have been cooking for him if I hadn't reached out. And I've had plenty of people say no. Um, but you just got to keep trying. And uh, if you get lucky, hook up to someone and um, be very quiet and listen. Chef Gordon, this has been amazing. <laughs> you have exceeded anything I ever imagined, and that's pretty fucking hard to do. Tremendous. I'm going to remember this day. Really wonderful. So inspirational. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for having me here. It was fun. Awesome. See you in Thailand. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, this week's JFK winner is Barry Kahn, K-A-N-N, from Herndon, Virginia. Congratulations, Barry. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, let's see. Landing on Jay Gacia, J-G-A-E-C-I-A, May 16, 2016. Great show with Felipe. I'm sure they mean Felipe Esparza. Five stars. It reads, what's up, fool? <laughs> That's Felipe's tagline and the name of his podcast. Uh, great podcast with Felipe. I religiously listened to his podcast weekly, and this show got me closer to Felipe. I can completely relate to him and growing up in the hood. Northside Houston, Texas was, is a rough side of Houston that is easy to get immune to the gangster life and seeing how the streets can teach you life lessons. Well, congratulations, Jay Gacia. Uh, you are a winner. As always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, till it all feels the same. Pick your own poison, dig your own grave, down in the 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.